Hi, my name is Annie Grossman, and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. So I am here with Claire Cario, who I am uh, honored to call an employee. <laughs> um, Claire, why don't you why don't you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you do at School for the Dogs, and then we can we can move back in time from there. Sure. Um, so I have um, been with School for the Dogs for the past year. It's been quite an interesting year for everyone. And uh, I came on board as a private trainer manager and also as one of the behavior therapy consultant trainers um, as well. I have, you know, Annie and Kate, you both, both of you guys have been, you know, colleagues of mine for years. We've walked in the same kind of pathway uh, for over a decade. And uh, it just really was a great opportunity and I was excited to come on board. Um, well, yeah. I mean, when, when we hired you, I felt like we have arrived. <laughs> <laughs> like if we have Claire Cario working for us, we're doing something, we're doing something right. And, um, well, I want to talk actually about the first time you and I met, which was like 10 years ago, but, um, but I'm interested in, in sort of knowing how you got into dog training to begin with. Cause you know what? I really, I actually don't really know. Yeah. Neither do I, Annie. <laughs> like, who am I? What am I doing? Who am I? Well, that's you figure that out after the fact, I think, generally. Um, yeah, my uh, my story is 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 interesting. Um, I used to work in the film industry as a camera assistant for years. Uh, so I was a union union camera assistant um, up until. Is that like is is that like uh, what does a camera assistant do? Do you like is that is that different than a best boy and also. I don't know what a best boy is, but <laughs> best boy. I actually was a best girl on a few jobs as well. Um, that's working in the electric department, specifically working oh. with anything that's electrical. Um, but the camera assistant is. I was a, a first AC, primarily. Um, worked my way up pretty quickly, um, and at the age of twenty three, I was uh, walked into the union. Um, basically, like it's it's so arbitrary that job, and the skill set is so weird. Um, but basically I kept, I, I kept things in focus. That was like a, that was like my primary goal. Um, and you know, I'm not going to get into, that's a whole nother podcast about what that actually means. <laughs> um, but now that, that's important. Yeah. Like obviously actors need to be in focus. Um, did you work on any films that, that we may have seen? I may have seen. Uh, yeah, I worked, uh, I did, worked in a lot of independent film back in the day when it was still independent. Um, I think probably the most um, well-known films that I worked on were Boys Don't Cry and ah. The Believer. That was launched Ryan Gosling's film career. And uh, Wendigo. Uh, Boys Don't Cry. I remember that one. That was a big deal. Yeah, that was a 
yeah, that was a, that was a privilege to work on. That was a great job. Uh, was the first. So, day. how did you get from there to to dog life? Um, you know, the film industry is a is a tough. It's a tough. It's a tough game. Um, certainly, being a, a woman in a technical field is also challenging, and it just was. It was hard to balance life, um, and so there was always some trepidation. And I never, I never finished undergrad um, straight off the bat. I went into film. Um, early on when I was 19. So I always wanted to go back to school. Um, and honestly, 9-11 happened, um, and there was no film work. And I went back to school um, during that time period. And Where'd you, where'd you go to school? A hunter, Hunter College. So I went- Oh, that was, well, I know you ended up getting a graduate degree there, but for mm-hmm. undergrad- Yeah, I there? finished my BA there. Um, and that's mm-hmm. when I really got into, I mean, it was always my passion. Animal behavior was always my passion. Um, always something I was interested in since I was a kid, but didn't know, like, just like somehow I fell into film. It's not something you know about when you are a kid that grows up in Delaware, but you kind of fall into it. And then animal behavior kind of that happened as well. Like once I started doing some, you know, doing some research um, in my undergrad, I worked with a fantastic professor, Dr. Muller at, at Hunter. um, And he kind of inspired me um, in terms of really, getting into animal behavior. And initially when I finished my undergrad, I was going to take a year off and pursue a PhD in primatology. Hmm. And, you know, that year I was, you know, not a kid. I was struggling to kind of like just pay the bills. And I was working also at a veterinary clinic just to get some more kind of like hands-on understanding of the medical side. Um, And then Hunter, they had just started the animal behavior and conservation program. And so I decided to do that. Um, so I went back to Hunter after a year off and, you know, pursued uh, a master's in psychology, human psychology and also a certification in animal behavior and psychology. And um, I'm interested that you that you you said animal behavior was always your passion because I don't even think I like knew what animal behavior was. was. Yeah. I mean, were you interested in dogs? Were you like reading everything? Everything. Jane Goodall is one of my heroes. Um, as a kid, you know, like I just, I remember watching, what was that movie about Diane? Oh, Diane Fossey with Sigourney Weaver. Like I remember watching that and just, oh my God, it was just like, oh my God, I just want to sit in the jungle with gorillas, you know, and like, <laughs> just watch them, you know, and just, and just kind of like observe them and also use that. Like, in, and you know, as a kid, I was just, I watched PBS all the time um, and just really nature. Nova. Nova, Nova. nature. Um, It just all, it just made sense to me. And it helped Uh me as a kid growing up um, feel like I had a better understanding of human behavior by watching Uh animal behavior. So that was always something that was interesting. And it's always way ahead of me (laughs) as a kid. It stuck with me, you know, like I had dogs growing up, but we, we we didn't train them. We didn't do anything with them. Um, so I wasn't even really, I know, like working with canines wasn't even something that happened until late into my graduate career. And I was like, reality set in, I'm like getting a little old. I don't know if sitting in the jungle is, is for me right now. Like, so, you know, and then I got really into working with dogs and towards the end of my, end of my graduate career, I, I, um, started working for it's weird because initially applied to be a a handler for a organization that uses border collies to haze canadian geese off of public and private land 
Oh, really? Yeah. I've always heard about that. Oh, yeah, Tell me yeah. more. And uh, so, you know, also slightly related recently uh, i know that they they bring goats into places oh, too yeah yeah here in prospect park there was there were like goats here rental goats mm-hmm. and they come and they and they, they just break down all the kind of all the weeds and so so that so that everything gets to restart in a fresh right. way yeah um anyway so tell, tell me more about that yeah so so i met with them and and they were super stoked and they wanted to hire me but they wanted me to work on long island and at the time i was living in brooklyn i was finishing my graduate degree and i was like i, I don't think i can do this um, and then they're like, well, you used to work in film, right? And so I ended up shooting a documentary for them. Oh, um, about what they were doing? Yeah. So I, I filmed a documentary for them. Um, got, What's that called? Uh, Geese Off. <laughs> they used it. It's on, it's on YouTube. Um, wow. I, I forget the title of it. They, they put it, we put it all together. Um, but we basically broke it down into like, I think, seven different segments. And it's all about mm. like border collies, you know, and, um, you know, this kind of humane uh, strategy, humane conservation strategy, to deal with the overpopulation of Canadian geese, specifically in the Northeast. Um, so was doing that, and then I ended up doing my thesis on that, um, and I ended up working for them here in Brooklyn. I had a border collie with me for six months, and we worked Brooklyn Bridge Park before that opened. Um, they had a serious problem with Canadian geese, and Molly and I would go there seven or eight times a day, um, and just work the land, push the geese off. Um, and it just, that's when I was just like, this is awesome. <laughs> I kind of want to keep doing this. That is so cool. Yeah. Where would the geese go when they went yeah, off? It's, it's, it's a strategy that is challenging because they really just go to the next kind of like piece of greenery. And, you know, that's a problem with, you know, dealing with, with the geese is, is there's so much lovely grass for them to eat everywhere. Um, they just hop over into an, another land. Um, it works really well, and it's obviously humane um, as opposed to the other techniques that have, are being used um, to kind of control the population. And um, yeah, so it was pretty cool um, spending that time and just really working with a dog for the first time in my life. Uh, and that's that was it. And I was sold. Um, I was like, okay. And what was your what was your thesis on then at Hunter? Um, it was on you know basically the humane the humane strategy of of hazing Canadian geese and also the animal human bond between trainer and dog. Um, so it was kind of a combination of conservation psychology. Um, and that's kind of like the direction I was wanting to go in was going back and doing more research related stuff. Um, you know, but then reality sets in and I was like, I need to work a little bit so I can pay off my student loans. Um, so when I finished, uh, my master's degree, I, you know, started looking around to see what I could do. Um, and during that period of time, I also apprenticed with a, with a trainer here in New York city. And then I started looking for work. Um, I was also starting to kind of formulate my own business and kind of building up that clientele. Um, I had been working for a veterinary office for four years, so I had a really good steady kind of connection um, and knew a lot about cats as well. So that was kind of also a forte of mine. Which um, veterinary is. practice were you working with? Um, they're, working they're actually no longer. It's a, uh, the Bregman Referral Group. Um, they were in Park Slope and in Williamsburg, and since then I think both of those offices have closed and they moved to Miami and Long Island. And were you um, like a vet tech? 
I was not a certified vet tech, but there was one of those smaller practices where, you know, they kind of just showed me stuff and, you know, I assisted in surgery and it just was a great experience. Hmm. Um, so learned a lot there, met some great vets who actually are still Dr. Pingley. Um, that's where I met her. Mm -hmm. Um, so that are still, you know, we have a good working relationship together and, um, yeah. And then I applied for uh, a job with the Good Dog Foundation as a therapy dog trainer and volunteer coordinator. Um, ended up- with- Which is where we first met. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and I was there for seven years. So I worked there pretty much part-time and then saw private clients part-time. Um, okay. And that was a fantastic experience because I, again, so much about what I do is the human-animal bond. And working with therapy dogs was not only great with the dogs, but with their- their partners, but also working directly with um, healthcare organizations, um, developmentally dis- disabled, uh, you know, working working in shelters, and just kind of bringing some kind of you know great progressive therapeutic things um, where they are needed. Um, so I did a lot of research in therapy work and the benefits of that, and it just was it was a great experience. Super great experience, right? So, uh, yeah. So, for people who don't know about Good Dog, can you explain a little bit sure. what it is? Yeah, um, Good Dog Foundation. And what, your, and what your role was there too? Yeah, it was. Um, so, Good Dog Foundation was uh, founded just around nine eleven, um, and Rachel McPherson uh, founded it, and it it exploded. Um, I worked with over two hundred organizations across New York City and all the five boroughs. Um, but basically we train therapy dogs. They're not, we weren't official like animal assisted therapy certifications. Um, it was basically a partnership where they'd go through a, a five week course. Um, you know, a lot of evaluation of the dog to see if they're able to kind of handle this level of stress, uh, being exposed to this level of stimuli, hospitals, jails, homeless shelters, things like that. Um, it can be a little challenging for a lot of dogs. And then making sure that they have, you know, a good layer of basic obedience. And, um, yeah, and we just brought happiness to people, you know. And there's been a tremendous amount of research that showed just petting a dog lowers um, cardio rates, decreases depression scores. Um, and it just, it, it, it was great. Um, it was just, it was super wonderful. Um, and, a, and a really so, great, like, starting point for my career. Mm-hmm. Well, we met when I was I, – I don't remember You're actually. You school. If you, yeah, I went to a school. I don't remember I, – I, um, I don't remember if you were the person who evaluated uh, me and my dog. I remember. Um, <laughs> but I remember meeting you at um, at the school. Yeah. Do, it was, do you know if you were the one who evaluated us? No, I didn't. I, I came on board right – I think you and Amos had just finished um, – mm-hmm the training program and then there was that initial visit that you had to be mm-hmm. you had to be observed on and that's when I jumped in um, right so I met you guys and I think it was a PS 75 school that you guys were working it was at. a it was out in like uh, Brownsville New York mm-hmm. it was a school for um like kids that are never going to be okay <laughs> yeah yeah I don't know the PC way to put it yeah but like well I mean if anyone knows PS75 is this school district in New York City that that basically that's the umbrella district for all the all the schools with you know special ed um, behavioral or, or physical specialties that are needed so they like 
uh, yeah, like they, they take everyone in the city and, and bus them there. Is that how it works? No. So the district itself is not like one place. It covers mm-hmm. lots of locations. Uh, okay. And usually it, there's like PS75 schools within another school. And that's got it. where you were. It was just like one or two classrooms. It was, um, we did it for maybe, I don't know, six months. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was rewarding. I mean, I definitely we would go into the classrooms and he would do some tricks and um and there were definitely kids who seemed like they opened up to him mm-hmm. uh in a way that was special mm-hmm. um but we we stopped doing it there was two reasons one it was it was pretty far and it just like ended up sort of taking like a, a lot of time that like I think at one point I was able to give that time and then I just wasn't able to anymore because mm-hmm. work but um but it was also like I found it really emotionally hard for myself yeah yeah it, um, it, that is definitely true um and that was something that I tried to work on in terms of like you know making sure that volunteers were um were okay in this like, work you know what I mean yeah it's not it's not it's not nothing yeah. and and I I you have to tell me if you have experienced this but I I have had the hunch many times that people say, oh, I want my dog to be a therapy dog. And it's like, they want it like a, like a badge that their mm-hmm. dog can wear of like proof of that they've attained a certain kind of, you know, level without um, necessarily understanding like, okay, well, if your dog is going to be a therapy dog, that's like quite actually a big commitment mm-hmm. on your part in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. time, energy, effort, emotions. It's not just like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, no. And compassion fatigue is a real thing. And, and I, and I, I hear you, you know, and I do think, you know, I think everyone you know, gets into the therapy dog work, um, because they, they do have that compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can, you know, and, and this is something I used to tell my volunteers all the time is like, you know, you really want to work in this specific environment, but let's talk about it. Let's talk about what that means to work in an, you know, a hospice environment like and I don't think people get it until they get there and they're like okay I need I, that that's a lot and it is it's a lot it's a lot for anyone that works in the healthcare industry yeah so it's like the dog is really only part of it mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um, absolutely and um, but I you know I think anyone who, who goes through that training it's is getting um, is, is helping their dog just be better socialized in mm-hmm. the world whether or not they go forward with it because yeah, yeah like a lot of times um I mean the, the kind of, a lot of it is uh the kind of stuff we do in puppy class like introducing them to crutches and wheelchairs mm-hmm. and like people touching them in ways that might be strange mm-hmm. and that's like valuable for for any dog to learn yeah and I think one of the hardest things for me to do is when I would do those initial evaluations where people were interested in going through the training process is you know meeting their dog and evaluating them and having to tell the volunteers it's like you may really want to do this but your dog doesn't Mm. right because if your dog doesn't want to do this it's not it's not going to be healthy because this kind of stress is not healthy um, right. It's like there's the dog. There's the dog that you imagined having, and then there's the actual dog that you have, and yeah. you have to do what's right for the dog right. rather than and love them for who they are. Love them for who they are. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you do now when clients say, "I'm interested in my dog becoming a therapy dog"? I either send them to them or to Delta, um, which is a little bit more kind of like 
self, like it's just an exam, like it's not a class. Um, Cause most of the other therapy organizations in the country, like TDI and Delta, it's just, you need to pass an evaluation similar to like CDC, CDC mm-hmm. um, where there's no actual class. They give you a book and they're like, here you go. And I think the, the good thing about Good Dog Foundation was that you would have this course designed, right? For the work you're doing then you get your final evaluation and then they kind of helped you find um, facilities because that right. that's challenging too. That's right. a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go through Delta or TDI, then yeah. are you responsible for finding your own facility yeah. that has... Yeah, you got to cold call people and just show up. Or they, I mean, I think some of them are listed. I have not, to be honest with you, paid attention in the right. past six or seven years. Um, well, one, one thing that um, has an idea that has been floating around since COVID started... Um, uh, actually came from a cousin of mine who lives in DC and has been doing something similar with his dog is like reading to dogs mm-hmm. online. I've, I've really, I, I've thought for a long time, it would be great to, if we could figure out some way to do like a, a dog, a, a, a kid and dog program where kids could like come to school for the dogs and read to like approved dogs mm-hmm. um, because uh, there are reading to dog programs throughout the country that mm-hmm. um, they're great. They're uh, fantastic. Yeah. It's it's unbi- yeah. unbiased judge judgmental environment. Um, we did a lot of that. I did a lot of that with schools, with the Brooklyn Public yeah. Library. Maybe we can uh, maybe we can put our our brains together and see if we can figure out a way to uh, really actually get that going, especially right now yeah. since kids are home. Um, but also the other thing that my cousin is doing um, that. Uh, I think would be cool is actually doing it via zoom, mm-hmm. um, which would probably open it up to a lot of dogs mm-hmm. who might not otherwise be mm-hmm. able to participate. It's um, funny you said that. Cause I, my, when I was in quarantine down in Delaware, my friend who I stayed with, she is, a uh, uh, she teaches, uh, children on the uh, autism spectrum and mm-hmm. she would, she would have moments of really challenging moments of just kind of keeping their attention during zoom sessions and she would just like, Claire, bring me a dog. And I was like, bring, I would bring generally Otis or her other dog, Daisy, and just go. And she would just like sit down on the floor and work the lesson, but have the dog in the frame as well. And it was it was a way to keep those kids kind of looking at the screen, right? Because they, it's like, what am I actually looking at? There's nothing interesting. But if there's a dog there, some of them were just like, okay, I'll pay attention now. That's uh, it was cool. That's genius. Okay, well. You, you and I have to powwow about this yeah. somewhere. Um, so after a good dog, uh, your well, your own business was called Barnyard. Barn, called Barnyard, Barnyard Behavior, Behavior yeah. Um, yeah, and that was great. It was super great. Um, but, you know, working for yourself is a challenge in this city. Um, and, you so know, and, you went from good dog to, to ACC? Right? I no, there was a little blip in between. Um, so there was one point where, again, towards the end of Good Dog, I was starting to think, okay, I'm tired of working with all these good dogs. I want to work with some more behavior challenging dogs. <laughs> I want the bad dogs. <laughs> yeah, give me some bad dogs. Um, so I applied for a job with the ASPCA, uh, their anti-cruelty behavior team. And ah. yeah, got a, got a call back literally within like, two hours after sending off. So explain, explain. I, I know what this is, but yeah. for those listening, explain um, what this is because it's so interesting. Yeah. So, so the ASPCA, um, wonderful, huge organization, um, but they have 
uh, anti-behavior, I'm sorry, anti-behavior, Jesus, anti-cruelty behavior <laughs> team um, is a part of their, well, it's gotten, it's gotten very big now, but it basically works with dogs in the field um, in terms of dogs that are being uh, seized from dog fighting rings or from hoarding cases or any type of, um, you know, specific abuse uh, that may be going on. And um, that's, that's, those are the dogs they work with, right? And then it's now a very large umbrella. So it kind of, they now have their rehab center down in um, Asheville. And so <clears throat> they work with dogs specifically there. But when I applied seven years ago, yeah, it was about seven years ago, um, I got a call back straight away from Dr. Pam Reed, um, who was the vice president at the time. And great interview went down. Um, she invited me for a working interview for three days uh, down in Florida. They had just seized um, a five-state dog fighting ring <clears throat> that had 370-something dogs um, in an emergency shelter. And I jumped right in, um, and it was fantastic. Um, it was a combination of a couple loves. Like it, it was fast-paced and high energy like the film industry and it was working on the fly thinking outside the box um did a lot of evaluations on these dogs and just i, I just fell in love with the work and um <clears throat> so then i ended up working with them as a consultant for two and a half years and deployed on like a dozen different cases uh over the over those years um, and it was incredibly fulfilling, uh, but not sustainable, right? Because they had a small team that was full-time and then they had a lot of consultants and it was exhausting because there were 10 day deployments. Um, sad tell me, tell me about like some of the cases. Um, I, most of the ones that I worked on were dog fighting cases. So I was working with, um, dogs that were taken from longstanding, uh, rings and, you know, I can't, I can't say too many specifics just because you know, there's some legality concerns. Um, but what, what we did was, you know, it was very, very well organized and regimented. Um, but we would evaluate all of the dogs um, that were seized from puppies. Well, I should say from the proper term, bitches, um, from pregnant female dogs all the way up to the older dogs. Um, we evaluate them all. Um, several times, you know, first when they come in after their two, two week quarantine, we evaluate them. Um, and then every two weeks we'd evaluate again after we do some, some behavior modification with them. Um, and it was, it's, 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 and this is on site. So you're like traveling around the country doing it. Yeah. It's, it, it was all on site. Um, and you know, these emergency shelters, most of them, since they're part of legal, um, cases, uh, were in like large warehouses and um, definitely a challenging environment for both humans and dogs um, to live in. And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, these dogs get stuck in limbo, right? Because these are legal cases and they're, mm. according to the law, they're considered property. Even if they're mm. owners, until their owners are, are actually convicted, they're still considered property of, of the owners, unless the owners give over their right of possession, which a lot of them don't because this is their source of income. This is their livelihood, um, are these fighting dogs. Uh, so these dogs sometimes would sit for one, two years, two and a half years 
um, in these emergency shelter situations. And oh, it's heartbreaking. And they can't even be fostered out. No, no, they couldn't be fostered out. Sometimes there was ways, like if the lawyers were able to get together and be like, okay, we can foster them in a home, but they're still not available for adoption and we can't do anything with them. Um, but a lot of times they just kind of sit in limbo. Um, so God, is dog fighting, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm just like, is, is dog fighting really still like a huge problem in a lot of parts of the country? Or yes. am I just like in a, in a, a bubble where it's not part of my world. Yeah, I mean it's 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 definitely it's definitely still very present. Um, you know, it's very cultural based, uh, also regionally based. Um, it's big in the south, and uh, you know, up here some of the cases are um, some of the rings are they're smaller. They're not generations, right? They're just they're just like newbies who are trying this out. Um, but some of the more kind of like seriously generations of 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 dog fighting um you know that's the idea of genetics right you you this is what we've been doing for years this is why golden retrievers are so wonderful happy pets to have because uh, we've bred them to be that way right and that's exactly what dog fighters do you know they they kind of like weed out the ones that are not as you know prone to dog dog aggression and things like that so it's still very big for sure and is it 100 percent like pit bull type dogs no not always not always there's some mixtures in there um you know and again it's regional you know it's, it's cultural and regional based um but for the most part it is um just just because of you know the uh the stereotype of the pit bull and like they do have mm-hmm. you know the the bite pressure is much greater than most dogs. I mean, mm-hmm. any dog who bites you is going to hurt you. Um, mm-hmm. But you times true, <laughs> yeah, you times bite pressure times um, you know some of that that behavioral repertoire, the modal action pattern of of mm-hmm. stalk, chase, bite, mm-hmm. shake. Um, <clears throat> you know at, it, that's in that terrier line. Um, it 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 makes for more damage, and that's what they're looking for, obviously. And are, I mean, are, are these dogs like fighting to the kill? I, that's pretty much usually the end result. Oh my God. I can't even, yeah. can't even think about it. Okay. I interrupted you. Yeah. <laughs> Go on. That's all. So, <laughs> Let's so, talk about happier things yeah. like New York, New York city, uh, <laughs> publicly run shelters. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so while I was doing that, I decided I wanted to walk away from, uh, working with therapy dogs and I applied mm. to animal care centers Mm-hmm. of New York City, which is the largest municipal shelter, open admission municipal shelter in the country. And um, and worked there for five years as uh, assistant behavior manager. And um, that I could talk to you for about five hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell, tell me, tell me something okay. about five hours. We, but... um, we, you know, when I walked in, when I walked in there, uh, so it's, what about I mean, what, ACC? Let's I, well, see. I mean, for people who are not in New York City, okay. can you describe like what it is, literally where it is and what it is? Because I think just like those details alone would mm-hmm. shock people. Yeah. So there are um, three full-time care centers uh, located in Brooklyn, Manhattan, Staten Island, and then two drop-off intake centers um, in the Bronx and Queens. And on a yearly basis, and don't quote me with these numbers because I don't work there any longer, um, on a yearly basis, we received 
9,000 dogs a year um, in intake. And at any given time at the three full-time care centers, we had upwards of 300 dogs in our care. That's a lot of dogs. Yeah, it's a lot of dogs. Um, And and it's mm -hmm. located like like literally a stone's throw from like some of the wealthiest neighborhoods in New York City. Yeah. Right? Which I I always like boggles my mind because like people who live on the Upper East Side by Central Park or whatever Mm -hmm. probably don't realize that there are these dogs who are like... Need a home. Need a home. Yeah. Like so close by them. Yep. Um, yeah, anyway, so, so while I was there, I, I, um, I worked primarily, uh, at the Brooklyn shelter and also at the Staten Island shelter. And then mm-hmm. towards the end at the Manhattan shelter as well, um, I had a fantastic team, uh, fantastic, fantastic, um, boss and just wonderful human beings that work there. And, um, we put together probably one of the most progressive behavior departments, um, while I was there for five years, uh, we ran play groups every day. Um, we had one of the most kind of fulfilling enrichment programs as possible. We were building up our volunteer program. We had trainers on staff. Um, and it just, I'm not going to say it was easy and go back to that compassion fatigue. Um, it definitely was challenging, but also incredibly rewarding. Um, mm. and, uh, yeah. So, and, and, and do, do, so a dog comes in there and then would they like go in a room with you? Like, how does that work logistically? So dogs, dogs would come in. Um, the way that it works is you don't evaluate a dog on day one, um, just cause the transition into a shelter is just too stressful for them. Um, so the earliest we would evaluate them would be day three, but on day two, they would come out to play group. Um, so that was the beginning of our eval. Um, so we would look at their dog-dog sociability and also look at how they, you know, were with handlers. Um, so it started from day one. Excuse me. We put together also a behavior evaluation for the medical staff there to see, because that's where the dogs would go first, is go get vaccines, um, have a full medical. Um, and then obviously we could kind of like absorb some of that behavior information on how they did there then we can help kind of like strategize what this dog was going to need um, and which direction this dog would go in. You know, would this dog go straight to adoptions? They seem to love getting vaccines and they're super, you know, social. Um, So there's no reason to hold a dog for another three or four or five days in a shelter if they're showing absolutely no behavior concerns. You know, if we have Uh a full history profile from from their uh, previous owners, um, you know, we would try and move these dogs through as quickly as possible and not hold on to them they just don't have that bandwidth capacity yeah, yeah. it just it just can't happen and there's a well, lot that's better for the dog to get them out of there too okay yeah i agree i mean a lot of people disagree with that a lot of people want to kind of like see the dog and get more information and it's just not we just can't do just couldn't well, do that al- at ACC. also from from you know the the little bit that i know about shelters a lot of times dogs get sick with like mm-hmm. upper respiratory infections yeah. and and in a shelter that is a is mm-hmm. not no kill shelter, yeah. um, they have to make choices about who they're going to keep. And so something mm-hmm. like a upper 
you know, like basically like a dog cold could be a death sentence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yes. It used to be that way at ACC, but they stopped that protocol a couple years ago um, and came up with different strategies. You know, and that's the, mm-hmm. that's the beauty of ACC. They've become very progressive in terms of thinking outside the box. Mm-hmm. Um, so dogs with, you know, what's called CIRDC, which is not just kennel cough. Um, so there's multiple bacteria and viruses that kind of make a dog sick, uh, just like people. Mm-hmm. Like the common cold is not just a virus, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a variety of things or it's just, it's much more complicated than that. So it's canine yeah. infectious resource. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so we just had different, you know, the foster program was great with that. Right. So a dog would get sick. We would have fosters set up that had single dog homes. Um, so the dog was able to come live out their treatment, you know, mm-hmm. and then in the meantime, we get some information about how the dog's in the foster home, how the dog is doing just in general. Um, some really great photos and then hopefully get them adopted so they don't have to come back to the shelter. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was kind of like that's what I mean by the different trajectories that these dogs would mm-hmm. go on. Um, so it's very it's really amazing um, framework um, that has, you know, ACC has put together in the past. I mean, anybody that knew anything about ACC 10 years ago, it's a completely different organization than it was 10, really? 10 years ago. Absolutely. Um, so it's, you know, but it's still, it's still challenging and it is, you know, still, I mean, I'm not going to get into the no kill framework um, because technically the definition of no kill is uh, 95% release rate, live release rate, Mm -hmm. which ACC has had for dogs um, since I started working there. Um, So it's technically not, it's technically considered a no-kill shelter. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's, yeah, that's because, you know, misinformation is everywhere. Before I got into dog training, I would have thought like, how dare they kill any dog? Like every dog could be saved. And now I feel like, you know, there, there is not necessarily like the perfect home mm-hmm. for every single dog and like that sucks yeah um, there's just not enough but, homes you know that's yeah you start there there's just not enough homes that are open to dogs that have any type of behavioral medical challenges mm-hmm. um so and that's a problem you know i mean that's unfortunately there's only, um there's only so many homes that can handle a dog that has you know severe on leash reactivity Right? They mm-hmm. just don't know how to manage it. They don't have the financial capability to, to hire a trainer, um, things like that. So that shuts down that many homes. Right. Right. So, right. Yeah. So. Well, you know, and and uh, not to uh, brag too much about what we do, but <laughs> I, think, I think we're doing good work in helping people with um, helping develop people's vocabulary mm-hmm. on how to even think about dealing with those kinds of issues Mm -hmm. you know yeah a a dog who who is lunging at other dogs on the street is not a bad dog no that is correct that is correct um and then we got you from there yeah he stole me stole me (laughs) (laughs) so tell me about tell me about otis your dog oh the best dog in the world (laughs) um otis did he come from ACC? No, he did not. He came from Kentucky. And here's the backstory of Otis is, uh, how old are you, buddy? Eight. Um, about seven years ago, I, when everything else in my life was changing, I was like, this is a good time to get a dog. 
um, I was looking at fostering a, well, fospicing an older special needs dog. Um, so I reached out to an organization um, here in New York City that is unfortunately no longer around because the um, organizer passed away, um, but it was called White Angels. And it was a white shepherd. Her name was Angie, and she had uh, just become paralyzed and had just gotten her wheelchair. And I was like, I, that's the dog I want to foster. Um, and so <laughs> what happened was there was someone else that was interested in the fostering, but they came and did a home visit. And while they're here, they're like, hey, you know what? We have someone else that might be better since it's not. I live on the sixth floor. They basically, they're like, what happens if your elevator goes out? And I was like, oh, I don't know. Carry a 65-pound <laughs> dog up and down the stairs. And they're like, we have we have someone else that's, that's too, super willing to, to take this dog. They have a yard. And I was like, okay, perfect. Um, but they had these two puppies that were being flown up to New York from a lovely farmer in Kentucky who is a working farm. And he had a what's called a a Southern cocktail accident where two of his Australian shepherds mated and mm-hmm. they had a litter and they both were double, they both were Merle coated shepherds. Um, and if you mate two Merle coated shepherds together, there's a 25% chance if you use the Punnett square, um, that some of the offspring will have some type of hearing or vision issues. Right. Mm-hmm. So there were five dogs in the litter. Two of them were born all white. Huge sign. It's carried in the coat collar um, that those two dogs were had some issues, right? So we find out they're both deaf. Otis had some serious, um, obvious vision impairments. And his brother Milo, also his eyes were a little bit wacky. Wacky beaky. And anyway, so those two dogs, they, they rescued and they flew up. Um, and they had a foster set up. But the foster was going away over the July 4th weekend, and they wanted to know if I could foster for those two for two weeks. And I was like, sure, I want to work with deaf puppies. That'd be awesome as a dog trainer um, to be able to communicate with a dog without my mouth. It would help me as a trainer. And so I was looking forward to just having these moments, you know, working with two dogs that couldn't hear me um, and using my body language and using touch. So I did that, and they were pretty cool. Um, certainly was challenging for two weeks, shipped them off to their foster who is in the, was there any unexpected challenge? Not in the beginning. No, other than their two puppies. Um, I mean, there, there were plenty after this fact, but they ended up going to their foster for one night and she freaked out because they were not sleeping overnight in the crate. Um, basically cause she was a lawyer and she worked 10 hours and then came home, took them out and then put them back in the crate and went to bed. And I was like, oh, that's not going to work. Um, <laughs> so she couldn't foster them, and I ended up taking them on. And uh, long story short, I still have Otis. He's now eight years old. His brother Milo I had for a year and a half. I found him a wonderful home uh, in western, uh, sorry, Aww. eastern Pennsylvania. We still, now we Zoom all the time, but we, 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 we visit two or three times a year. Um, Sweet. The challenges are are real um, in a lot of things, right? Um, but it actually, Annie, hasn't been that wasn't that hard. It wasn't that hard, um, just because well, it, dogs communicate mostly with their body. 
Right. And they, and they are reading us so much of the time mm-hmm. anyway. Yep. Um, again, in my like pre b- before being a dog trainer days, um, I fostered actually one time, um, through a crazy pants foster woman in Brooklyn, whose name I won't mention. <laughs> and I probably had no business. I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> fostering at all. Um, this, I had fostered a deaf, mm-hmm. uh, young deaf pit bull and uh, um I remember they were gonna like set me up with a dog trainer who like specialized in working with deaf dogs and and um now looking and I and I I remember feeling like like oh like I I ended up not they ended up it was so messed up like I never even got to meet the trainer and but uh, but I remember thinking like oh that's quite a specialty And, and now I think like you know like I I don't I think you could have a specialty in working with deaf dogs Mm -hmm. but I think any like good dog trainers should be able to help you work with a deaf dog because like they are already they're like experiencing the world like I'm sorry I'm like not saying it well like we put too much stock in their ability to uh navigate the world Mm -hmm. through their ears Mm -hmm. when they really have you know the their their nose and their eyes are doing Mm -hmm. a lot more work than we give them credit for would you would you yeah no I, I absolutely agree um, you know, I mean, they're, they're, of course, with your, your typical structure of, of, you know, training cues and things like that, it's going to be different, right? So attention is harder. You have to be within arm's reach in order to get the dog's attention, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you work with a vibrating collar, which I did with, with Otis for a couple mm-hmm. years and Milo. Mm-hmm. I don't need it anymore. I've stopped using it years ago because his off-leash is perfect. Um, he just... He just checks in and stays close. Um, but early on, especially with that adolescence period, you know, it's just a lot of patience and waiting and waiting for them to get it, you know, and just being very consistent. And like I said, it's, it's, there's very few challenges. And honestly, there's more positive benefits, especially living in a city environment to having a deaf dog. <laughs> you know what i've often thought you know they make those like earmuffs for dogs Mm -hmm. yep for a reason um yeah which is like so genius but um and and you know that they do of course they they do devocalization surgery Mm -hmm. yeah that's for dogs yeah my windows windows and my windows and door barker um workshop that i give every couple months yeah this is how i start out i'm like i got a best solution for you guys and like it, it, and it, and it, you know, I'm I'm trying to be make the world quiet yeah, for your dog. <laughs> it's, jovi- it's jovial, but it's like it really is. It's a, it's just it's it's a bonus. Like I, well, if someone could just invent like earplugs for dogs, um, rather than or or if you're going to do surgery, maybe like making dogs deaf. Not that I'm suggesting no. this, but <laughs> if you're going to do surgery rather than devocalizing right. them. It's just... But I'm sorry, Gohan, you were saying no. I just there really hasn't been too many challenges. Um, you know, for, for me personally with Otis, it's, it's more, um, his deafness is one of the least of my concerns medically with him, his vision, Mm -hmm. you know, his vision is. Well, can you tell the story? I, I, you told the story one of the first times, um, that we had like a a meeting, I think Mm -hmm. at school for the dogs. And I, I was, uh, fascinated. Can you tell the story about, about his eyes? Oh yeah. He's also, um, those are more concerning, right? Cause obviously he, he can't hear. Uh, funny thing is he can something about the double mole syndrome that he has is 
the ear works like everything works in there that he doesn't have um part of the the deleterious gene has taken away the cilia that pushes the sound waves into his ears right so he can he can hear low vibration things because it's a nice slow wave and it gets in there um mm -hmm. anyways it's getting all sciencey his vision has been terrible. One of his eyes just didn't work um, from the get-go. It was, and I'm not going to use any of the scientific terms, but too small for the socket and turned inwards. And also his pupil um, is, it doesn't respond to light, so it doesn't open and close. Um, it's also uh, in the shape of a star, so it's not round either, so that light waves come in and bounce around. Um, so lots of issues. Huh, okay. Yeah, his other eye is like that as well, but it, it functions, obviously it functions somewhat. Um, but maybe I would say 25 to 30% of a, of a full functioning eye. Um, but that right eye, it failed miserably when he was about three. Um, glaucoma set in and we had to remove it. And now he's a one-eyed dog. Um, but he still has issues. You know, he still has recurring uveitis. Um, but, but talk about how you figured it out. The... Oh, the, oh, the behavior changes. Is that what you're talking, yeah, that's what you're yeah, talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a whole nother thing. Totally forgot about that. Um, yeah. So the eyeball, as it was starting to degrade over time, Otis started developing um, some really concerning, challenging behaviors. Um, he basically became agoraphobic. And it almost- Very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. Like almost that. happened overnight. And- you know, me being me, I went through everything thinking about, was there something that happened? Was there an event? What's going on? Like to the point where I was like measuring the barometer pressure every day, see if that would affect it. But he just, for four months, um, he would go out. He still, he, ne you know, he still continued to relieve himself outside, but it was just, once he was done, he was, he would plant and that was it. And it would start shaking. Um, you know, something I see all the time with clients where it's just that, that, extreme urban anxiety or agoraphobia um, that often you can kind of be like, oh, they're just overwhelmed by the stimuli. But for Otis, it wasn't this, it was just happened, you know? And then what I did was I kind of started to kind of put things together. And I was like, I think it's the eyeball. I think the eye hurts him, right? Because the eye was starting to swell up and the pressure in the eye was getting more intense and more intense. And I did everything that I could. Um, you know, I did all the treatments that I could possibly do with him. We only ate outside. Um, I have live on Eastern Parkway, so there's benches all the way up and down the sidewalk. So I'd go out, I'd feed him 10 kibble on one bench. Then we'd walk to the next bench, feed him 10 more kibble. I mean, did everything. Um, you know, went to a vet behaviorist. She looked at me and she's like, you're doing everything I would tell you to do. And, uh, and she's like, maybe let's try fluoxetine. And I came home with the script in my hand and I was like, this is not what's going on. This is, I know this is not what's going on. So I reached out to his ophthalmologist and I was like, cause she swore, she was like, it's not causing him pain. Um, and I said to her, look, I, I'm, I think this is it. Like, I, I, can we, can we just take it out? It's not working anyway. Um, so she agreed, took the eyeball out, sorry, <laughs> removed the eyeball. <laughs> And uh, Pop, popped out that <laughs> popped it right out. Um, <laughs> inoculated the eyeball, and uh, you know he he stayed overnight. Um, I went to pick him up. He rested during the day. Um, I took him out just for a short walk 
that evening, went back in. The following morning, I took him across the street to the park, which he hadn't been at. We hadn't made it across the parkway in like six weeks. And he was just like walking with a cone on and just walking normal. And I was like, okay, this is weird. He just seems fine. Um, stitches all across his, you know, his eyeball area, cone on. And we get up to the park and I was like, he seems kind of happy. And I just, I unleashed him and he just took off. Aww. He just took off running in like, was just like bounding around and bouncing. And I was just like, oh my Aww. God. Um, I know. Yeah. And I still, I still watch that video like almost like every six months because it was so, <laughs> it was so incredible. And I was like, holy crap. So I sent it to his ophthalmologist and I was like, I told you it was the eyeball. Um, <gasps> and that was it. And that was the end of the behavior. So do you think it was just some like pain, some association, mm-hmm. the pain that he associated for some reason with being outside? Or do you think being outside made it more painful? I th- what's your what's your guess? I think it's a combination of things. I think the light probably caused some pain. Um, I mean, I suffer from migraines, so I understand what light does when you have that kind of pain. Um, that pressure, you know, in, mm-hmm. in an eyeball that anybody that has glaucoma, um, any human, they can tell you how that feels. Movement hurts. Um, I, you know, and just like being outside and not being in the comforts of your home. Um, so I think all mm. those things, he's just a very sensitive dog and, and, uh, he's like, oh, I did my business. I want to go back home now. Um, but Aww. it was all good. So now you have a deaf one eye mold <laughs> doggo. Yep. Um, and, um, tell me about working with clients with with deaf dogs is are they surprised sometimes when you suggest a vibrating collar no most of them don't i mean i think most of the clients that i've seen over the years um, with deaf dogs and they find me somehow um i've already done some research on their own um and a lot of times they've bought it but they've never taken it out of the package because they don't know what to do <laughs> the first step is <laughs> uh you know because there's a lot of there's one open the box <laughs> open the box charge it um yeah, no, I mean, I think for the most part, anybody that has a deaf dog and, and they're most, most of my clients are people that have rescued a deaf dog, you know, not that they realized later that the dog was deaf, because I think that's a different perspective. Um, but they're like, okay, now what do we do? Um, and, you know, the hardest thing is you just start square one. It's like first teach your dog attention, mm. period. Like you have to have to have a strong foundation in attention. I mean, that's for any dog, whether they're hearing or deaf is mm-hmm. you need to make sure that you can get your dog's attention when you need it. You know, and that requires time and patience and some impulse control on the dog's part, right? So working through puppyhood and adolescence and having that patience to be like, okay, at some point they're going to be able to think for themselves. And that's a good time to make sure that we know what's going on. Because. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And any like special tips or tricks that if someone's listening with it and has a deaf dog? Hmm. Um, work that nose. Mm. Work the nose. Um, do scent work. Um, work your dog's nose as much as possible because it's it is a it is a sense that um, dogs are clearly born with noses that work really darn well, but mm-hmm. they have to learn how to use it right? They have to learn how to understand it. They have to create a 
that pathway, a really strong pathway into the neural neural system. Um, so work on as much scent work as you can. Um, I think it's it's super important for deaf dogs to be able to navigate their environment through their nose. They'll they'll build it up over time, but if you can kind of speed it along by kind of helping them exercise their nose, if you will. Mm-hmm. What's what's like a at home exercise? Just like hiding things under cups and bowls. Absolutely. Um, Otis still helps me to uh, break down my paper products. Um, so they're <laughs> really good at re- like recycling, like when I paper bags and boxes. Um, I'll just pull them out and put stuff in them and hide them in certain areas, and then he goes at it and whatever. I just sweep it up, but at least it's all broken down, so it fits nicely. It's nice and smaller. Doesn't take up much. That's a job. Yeah, uh... it's my job. Um, absolutely yeah and you know I play nose work games with him for years just in the park um, mm-hmm. where and it's also because his vision is not super great um, so I kind of work on strengthening that nose no matter what so we'll be walking next to each other and I'll just bank I'll do a hard left turn um, and mm-hmm. walk 20 maybe 20 feet from him and stop and he'll keep mm-hmm. walking and then he realizes that I'm not there and then you know he needs to find me Right. And then when he does find me, he gets all excited and then he'll get a little piece of kibble or something. Oh, well, Claire, this has been so interesting. Thank you for taking the time. You're welcome. Um, is there is there like a, a good thing you can say about working at school for the dog? <laughs> <laughs> that asks your boss. <laughs> I mean, I just considering all the experiences mm-hmm. you've had, I'm wondering like what. I mean, I, I hope it's not a takeaway because I hope we're not going to be losing you anytime soon. But, but how would you describe the experience of working at School for the Dogs as opposed to your, your other jobs? Um, honestly, I've learned a lot in the past year from the people that I work with. Um, you know, I think the wonderful thing and one of the things that drew me to School for the Dogs is the different levels of um, life experiences and knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like dog training and dog behavior is not a, there's, there's, it's not a, it's not a um, single. There's not one track. Yeah, there's just not, there's not one road, right? Like that's the beauty of working with a team is that it's important to have more than one pair of eyes on, on a case study. Um, mm-hmm. And I enjoy that. Um, it's something I think is super important in all walks of the dog world. Um, because, you know, we, we get, as we age, we tend to get a little singular in our thinking, um, and it's not direction I wanted to go in, which is thinking, Hmm. thinking one, one, one place. Um, but you know, you have a completely different track than Kate has, than Anna has, than Aaron has. And, you know, it's just like, yeah, we all meet in the middle. Um, but there's lots of different kind of things and skills and techniques that um, we all used in order to kind of treat the same type of behavior, right? And pulling that all together can only do more for the dog and the dog's family um, than just one specific treatment plan. Very true. All right. You're the best. So excited that that you're on this team. Me too. And... um, if people are listening and want to go to your Instagram, <laughs> Ghost Dog Otis, is that right? Uh, ghost Dog underscore Otis. 
Ghost Dog underscore Otis <laughs> for all your Otis photo needs. Yes. There's <laughs> absolutely no science there or training advice whatsoever. It's just pictures of my dog. <laughs> As it should be. Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com. I wanted to let you know that I have a brand new, totally free masterclass available, and I'd love if you wanted to check it out. It's about an hour long, and it goes over three simple things that every dog owner needs to know in order to teach a dog quickly and easily without pain, force, a major time investment, or fancy equipment. When you register, you'll also get a free 20-page ebook all about what I call the dog training triad. You can find it at anniegrossman.com slash masterclass.